Hey everybody, this is Ben Kesnoka, co-founder and partner at Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is our podcast, where we go deep on all things business and technology with world-leading experts. Hello, everybody. I'm Olga Sigievich, the head of investor relations at Village Global. I am pleased to introduce our guest today, Mark Cuban. Mark needs no introduction, and we all know about many of his successful entrepreneurial pursuits in the worlds of technology and media and entertainment. But in today's conversation, we will talk about another area where Mark is spending a lot of his time, and it's an industry that touches everyone's lives. It's one of the most important industries in any country. It's the one where challenging the status quo is perhaps the most impactful one in the United States. And of course, I'm talking about the healthcare industry. So today we'll talk about Mark's investments in the healthcare sector, what he is building with Cost Plus, and some of the other themes. So we'll dive right in. Mark, you've been very active in investing and building in the United States healthcare system in the last few years. And it's um, it's an important industry that touches everybody's lives. And there's a lot of big problems there to solve. So, um, you know, excited to see people like you trying to take on that sector and fix some of the problems. So let's get started with how do you see the U.S. healthcare system today? What are some of the key issues, how we got here, you know, I, I'm sure somebody tried to fix it. Like, why Why has it not worked? Where are we today? Well, it's a mess. It's completely fucked up. It needs to be completely dismantled. And we're good at innovation, which is important. We're good at discovery and even training doctors and scientists. But the system itself, the execution and implementation of healthcare in this country is back ass half words and completely broken and it needs to be completely dismantled. It's not, I don't know that there's a way that you can just evolve our evolve the system to a better way. And you know, and that's kind of the underpinning of cost plus drugs. Um, as an entrepreneur, whenever I hear about an industry where all their customers hate doing business with it, uh, you know, it, that's a, a big old green flag saying, go, go, go. This is an industry ripe for disruption. Um, and to take a step back, you know, what got me into healthcare um, was about six, seven years ago when there was a lot of talk of just getting rid of Obamacare, the um, the ACA. And I was talking to people who were in the incoming administration at the time, and they were all wanting to get rid of it, but nobody had any idea what to replace it with. So I told them I would take a look and started looking at different options, but more importantly, got it, got a handle on how the system was working. And the challenge for our healthcare system is that the interests of patients and providers and payers are not all aligned. There's more alignment between providers and payers who want to optimize revenue wherever they can versus patients who want to pay as little as possible and stay healthy. And so the alignment with the payers and providers have, have only gotten stronger and stronger, um, which has led to um, the verticalization, a lot of um, acquisitions, a lot of M&A as, you know, these companies turn into conglomerates and try to control their own destiny. And so with cost plus drugs, rather than working inside the system for medications and, um, and selling drugs, um, we made the choice to work outside the system, knowing that somebody was going to come along and finally 
disrupt how medications are bought and sold, and we wanted it to be us. So tell us more about Cost Plus, how how you met the company, what exactly the company is focusing on. Um, I think I think it's been a few years now that you've been working on it. So sort of you know what what, what is um, progress to date? What are some of the things that were surprisingly easy, and what were some of the things that are surprisingly difficult? Well, it started with a cold email from Dr. Alex Oshmyansky. He emailed me. He had a um, compounding pharmacy in Denver that he was working on that where he wanted to um, be able to manufacture in small quantities um, medications that were in short supply or were had no supply whatsoever. And I was like, that that's a noble effort, but we've got to think bigger. You know, there, this is such a mess. If we if you can make these generic medication uh, uh, medications in particular less expensive than they're being sold for today and simpler to acquire, well, let's do it on scale. And so we got together and started Cost Plus Drugs probably 2018, 2019. Um, but at that point, it was more just filling out all the paperwork because in order to start anything related to the pharmaceutical industry, there's a lot of paperwork. There's getting registered in all 50 states as you know a wholesaler, as a retailer, all these different things. And so it took us some time to do that and to learn about what was going on in the industry. And then um, we came to the conclusion that what was really missing across everything was transparency. You know, when you walk into a drugstore, if you're uninsured or underinsured, then you have no idea what you're going to pay for a medication. If you're insured, then your company that's providing the insurance has no idea what they're paying for your medication. And that opaqueness is what drives a big part of the profitability of not necessarily the pharmaceutical industry, the drug manufacturing side, but all the middlemen um, and the payers that are between there. You know, everybody's seen lately the discussions about pharmacy benefit managers, PBMs, but PBMs are just one part of a vertically integrated organization that also owns the payers, the insurance company, also owns retail pharmacy um, chains like Walgreens and CVS, et cetera. And 200, typically each one of these um, of the three dominant PBMs all have 250 affiliates or um, subsidiaries. And so we decided that that was so opaque that what was completely missing was trust. And nobody trusted anybody but their doctor in the entire supply chain. And the way to overcome that was to be completely transparent. So we decided, um, made the executive decision to not only show our pricing, which was unusual, but also to show our costs what our markup is, which is 15%, what our pharmacy fill fee is, which is $5, um, and what our shipping fee is, which is $5. And then I also decided to put my name on the company because I'd never put my name on a company before. And I wanted manufacturers and you know um, vendors that we'd be working with to know that I was serious about it and that I was committed to investing whatever it took. And all that said, come January 19th of 2022, we finally launched our mail order uh, pharmacy, costplusdrugs.com. And it immediately blew up. I mean, you talk about hockey stick. It was immediate and impactful and changed lives right off the bat. And, you know, we had a we had some certain strategies um, that we took that were a little bit differentiated that founders would want to know about. Um, the first decision after the transparency and trust was zero marketing. All of our marketing was going to be earned media and referrals from our existing patient base. 
And the reason I made that decision is if you're a patient and you have, unfortunately, a disease, let's just say you need, you have leukemia and you need a drug called imatinib, which we sell. Well, you're going to see that prior to costplusdrugs.com, that drug costs you anywhere from $200 to $2,000 a month. And the reason there's such a great disparity in pricing is because, again, there's no transparency. You can't just go look it up and see what the price is. And there's some sources that will show you a price, but that price often changes. And so when people saw that our matinee price was about $60 a month versus 200 to 2000. Well, I knew that everybody who had leukemia and used a matinip was going to tell everybody else in their Facebook group who had the same illness about cost plus drugs. And they were going to tell their doctors because they needed to prescribe with us. And those doctors were going to go to conventions and, and different organizations that were related to um, their specialties and tell everybody about cost plus drugs. And that's exactly what happened. And so building on word of mouth and referrals, we've continued to grow week over week, over week, over week, continuously. Um, Our biggest challenge right now is just keeping up with it. So I'd imagine with, you know, with this company, you are disrupting the business of many different types of players. So whom are you disrupting? What's been their reaction so far? Is there space to collaborate? Well, we're we're just a little pimple right now on the whole industry. So I I don't want to say that we're disrupting anybody yet, but we're helping patients. We're helping our customers. And that's the most important part. So going in, yes, I want to disrupt the industry because for the reasons we discussed, it's a mess, right? Nobody enjoys the whole process. You know, nobody likes having to take medicine in the first place, but all the economic uncertainty that's associated with it makes it far worse. And, you know, no, you know, here we are in 2023 and there's still, you know, Americans who have to make a decision between rent, food, daycare, and their medications. And so, you know, that's wrong in every every sense. And so, you know, rather than feed, focusing on, okay, who doesn't like us and who's disrupting us and what can happen next, we know we're, our focus is really to just stick to our basic business, which is we buy drugs. We show you what our cost is and what our markup is, and we sell those drugs. And if we can be efficient and and be the low-cost providers, we're going to make a lot of people very happy and much healthier. And the the adherence and compliance to those medications is going to be far greater. So what I would say to answer your question, it's not so much the disruption because we're working outside the existing system that's built on rebates and all these other games to try to create more um, gross margin dollars and profits. But what we're really disrupting is what patients who are uninsured, underinsured, and who have non-big PBM insurance, we're making their lives easier because we're making it far less expensive. Yep. And tell us more about the rest of your healthcare portfolio. You have a number of other portfolio companies. Do you think of it as, you know, what are some of the things that you're doing everywhere across the value chain? Or is it more, you meet a great company, it's a great idea, it's worth pursuing and you invest in it? Yeah, most of, I haven't really done much in the healthcare space since Cost Plus launched because it's been my focus. But, you know, Aon, um, who uses AI to um, better manage um, lung cancer um, adherence and detection and management. Um, Genestesis, which is an interesting company who uses um, machine learning, and they're just getting final approvals finally from the FDA. But effectively, what got me excited there was 
every single organ in our bodies emits um, an electrical pulse. And there are literally machines that can capture that electrical pulse. And so they focused on the heart and said, you know, for primarily men of a certain age, not me yet, but getting close, there's always those moments when you feel something in your chest and you immediately get terrified, you know, where it's like, okay, am I having a heart attack? Is it this? Is it that? When you go to the doctor with that, it's very hard to determine whether or not something happened, right? Because EKGs, ECGs, sonograms, et cetera, don't always capture everything. So what they've been able to do is you can go to the hospital and immediately jump into um, one of these scanners, and it takes the output as an audio file, old school wave file, and runs it through machine learning. And because it's taken so many instances, though the Um, the sound of that electrical pulse that's emitting from your heart has a unique trait or unique um, signature to it that can be identified with a a significant amount of accuracy using machine learning. And so this was six, seven years ago, I think it was, that I started working with them, maybe even longer now. Um, So they were early, and that's what got me excited about them. Taking new technologies at the time um, or early technologies and applying it in new ways that create sensational outcomes once they get approved. Um, So earlier when you were talking about launching Cost Plus, you mentioned how long it took to go through all of the registrations. And obviously, healthcare is a regulated industry for a very good reason. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes you hear these thoughts that, well, in the United States, we don't have enough regulation, we don't have any regulations, so Wild West. On the other hand, you hear from people, you know, these industries are overregulated. So what's your take on what role regulation should play in the industry? I mean, you always want to protect people's health from people who are less scrupulous. There's always somebody out there who's going to put money over someone, the care of a patient. And it's unfortunate, but it's reality. So there's a need for regulation that protects patients. There's a need for, you know, making sure that medications work. Again, protecting patients. It's not something you can mess around with so that someone can try to make a few extra dollars. That's just wrong. Um, So that's needed. States need registration. I mean, maybe there's a little bit much there. Maybe there can be more federal scenarios there for registration that applies to all states. I guess you can make an argument there. And then there's the whole Medicare for all versus our current system debate. And, you know, you can make an argument in both directions. I'm not a Medicare for all person simply because I don't think the government, I, I think politicians will make the decisions that people who really that should be made by people who understand the industry and understand healthcare. And I think that's the, that's the challenge. And every four years, as we saw with the ACA, you know, um, the Obama administration did a great job getting it passed and the Trump administration did everything they could to try to undo it. Now, fortunately it didn't happen. I'm a fan of the ACA. It's not perfect, but I'm a fan of it. Um, and even with Medicare for all, you get an administration in there that is not supportive of it. A lot of things can go wrong. So, But that said, you know, I would not be opposed to government getting involved more in healthcare, particularly on the payer side, because I think when I talk about payers, for people who aren't familiar, I'm talking about the insurance companies primarily. Um, There's cash payers, which are the individuals, companies, but most typically it's the insurance company. I think because those companies have expanded so much, they've gotten away from their core competency, which is being there you know, when a customer of theirs who's been paying premiums for a period of time can't afford the care that they need. And so they've gotten into so many extraneous businesses 
they're, they've gotten away from that primary business of what insurance is made for. And that's led them to doing a lot of denials, pre-authorizations, a ton of paperwork, new contracts every year, all these things that add up so that the cost of healthcare of the cost of healthcare in this country, anywhere from 20 to 30% of that's administration. And so it would not break my heart that if um, the government put together, say, a means was was a reinsurer, right? So was there to help if Olga or Mark or whoever had a catastrophic illness in her family and we weren't able to afford it, then the government would be the reinsurer for the part you could not insure and you know, put you on a payment plan to pay it back. Or if your income was under a certain level, let's say you're under two times the federal poverty level or $50,000 or whatever it is, it's free, right? Because we don't need the government to pay for my health care, right? We need the people, we need the government to support the health care of people who can't afford the care that they're getting or that they need. And so I think there's a role for government, but it it's not going to be easy just to go from a straight line from here to there because the insurance companies aren't just going to say here take our business. Yep, and um, you know as as you know, Village Global is quite active uh, investing in the healthcare sector. And what's interesting is many of the founders in our portfolio today. This actually isn't the first company they tried in that sector. They tried something else. It didn't work. Um, you know, very often it was a question of business model of the industry not being aligned with what's actually better for patients. And, you know, it's, it's extremely encouraging to see that these people are trying to gain. They're just, yep. you know, they're just focusing on a different part of the industry. So are there any parts of the healthcare industry that you actually would not recommend founders to focus on for whatever reasons? It might be too difficult, might not be sustainable. Um, sort of, you know, we've talked about things to do. What is something not to do? So what I've said to people in terms of what not to do is not to try to optimize the current system. In other words, if when if we if you agree that the current system is broken, trying to optimize it on the edges might give you a, a short-term play, but now you're committed to working in a broken system. And that will very often go wrong. Where it goes right is the incumbent players decide to buy you because they see you as a challenge. So, mm-hmm. you know, if I was if I was 25 or 30 years old and starting a healthcare company that was disruptive, all right, I might try to work in the system because I might be able to get a nice exit, which would be great for me personally. But if you're a VC company and you're trying to make wholesale ubiquitous changes that really changes an industry, you have to work outside of it because working inside the industry, you're just taking a bad industry and just, you know, shuffling the deck chairs on the Titanic, you know, adding a little paint to the front bow of the Titanic. You might get paid for do, for the paint job, but it's not going to have an impact in the long run. But again, everybody's got to look at their own personal scenario. It may well be you can get to an exit and accomplish something you've always dreamed of personally. And I never take anything away from an entrepreneur who tries to do that. Yeah, well, it's 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 a great message for founders. Um, so let's um, let's maybe expand the scope here uh, to technology world today more broadly. What are some of the sectors that you're paying attention to? What are you excited about? Where else are you spending your time? I mean, AI, 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 right? And it's been that way for the last few years. As I've been saying for years now, there's two types of companies in the world: those who are great at AI and everybody else. You know, I'm I'm old enough to remember going back to the early days of PCs and LANs where there were people who didn't think they needed the PC or people who didn't think they needed to connect their PCs or people who didn't think they needed the internet. 
And, you know, it's analogous to what people say today about AI. Well, you know, my business is great. You know, I don't know if I need it. I don't know how to use it. It's difficult to implement. There's, it's challenging. All those things are true, but it works and it works well. It may not be easy, but every single business is either going to have to use AI well or be abused by somebody who is using AI. And so I've been, you know, I mentioned Aon, I mentioned um, Genestesis going year, going back years that are AI-based. Now, you know, AI has kind of fallen into two categories, generative and all other AI, where you've got, you know, the chat GPTs of the world, the, the dollies of the world that are generative. And then you've got the business process optimization, optimization AI, where you're trying to improve your supply chain or trying to improve your sales and figuring out, you know, where to apply resources, those types of things. And you've got to, you've got to understand and be good at both. Now, the problem from an investment perspective is that there's so much bullshit, right? So much bullshit. There's not a business plan that I get or a pitch that I get that doesn't mention AI anymore. And when you try to dig in and say, okay, what are you using? What's your platform? Yada, yada. You know, it turns out that 99% of them are using off-the-shelf libraries and doing maybe some Python, maybe just some spreadsheets with machine learning. And, you know, trying to say that they're an AI-based business. And when you try to ask them for what type of results have you gotten, they're in that catch-22, well, we don't have enough data. We haven't had enough time. You know, we're still working on it. Um, or it's expensive and we need to raise money because we want to do our own large language model. And it's like, okay, if you want to do a large language model, how are you going to deal with the quote unquote hallucinations and how are you going to turn it into a knowledge model? You know, are you using rags, which check the output of one to put, you know, and so there's all these things where, you know, it's forced me as an investor to become much more fluent in the technology than I otherwise might have to be. Because again, whenever there's a new technology that's really caught fire and it's obvious that it's going to have a significant impact, it's really easy to fool people. There's going to be an AI Theranos, you know, there just will be. And, and so it takes a lot more effort to try to grasp where things are going. You know, you've got to put it in context that, you know, we're at ChatGPT4. What's it going to look like at ChatGPT10? You know, and because these large language models are just that, they're language models, not knowledge models, not output models, right? That also means you've got to deal with domain knowledge. How do you make it fit what you're trying to do and make that output accurate? You know, I've got um, a little company that I created more for my own personal use than anything called foodguides.com. And it's because I had asset reflux and I was always looking for foods that I could eat and recipes I could use so that my acid reflux would go away. And I always was jump around from site to site. And one of our guys is now using ChatGPT to try to make a little um, prompt-based bot, if you will. But the challenge is how do you make it accurate? Because the last thing you knew you need is, you know, okay, take a, you know, the output from the prompt is do this, this, and this, and add some bleach to it, you know, because unless you're checking the output of every answer, you don't know when that's a possibility. And so try, we're in, and the point is, excuse me, when you're in your early days of technology, 
not only do you have to understand it, but you have to look for its own weaknesses. And by looking for those weaknesses, you can be a better investor because you can challenge the entrepreneurs that are coming up with these suggestions and actions and make sure that they know what they're talking about and that there truly is a business plan to get where they want to go. Because at one level, ChatGPT is dirt cheap. You know, there's all kinds of libraries, there's all kinds of plugins, there's everything that you can do to create almost anything that you want. But is that a business, you know, and does it just check a box to say we're doing it or does it give you a, a, a differentiation and is that protectable and how does it scale? All the traditional questions you would ask, but because it's all so new, you know, how does it apply? Do you personally use ChatGPT? What are some of the use cases that... Um, oh, I use it for everything. Yeah, I use it for everything from basic, you know, I just, I spent a couple hours yesterday, not a couple hours, an hour yesterday, copy and pasting a bunch of my tweets in there because I want, you know, so I can start getting, start training it on how I think. I'll start, you know, when I get another break next weekend, I'll start taking some of the um, emails that I've done and just slowly but surely, I'm going to update it so that I can say, okay, I need to write about costplusdrugs.com, right? You know, write a simple presentation about costplusdrugs.com in my writing style. And, you know, it's not going to be perfect, but it's kind of a typing hack where if I, all I have to do is make corrections as opposed to start from scratch, like I would have a year ago, then that's a big win. And if I can keep on um, training it, and updating it and, and allowing it to update, whether it's ChatGPT or Bard or what you know Lambda, whatever else comes along, um, then I'm way ahead of the game because it teaches me. I understand it. Um, I've used it with my son, you know, because I've allowed them to use it for schoolwork. My kids are 13, 16, and 19, um, and I've encouraged them to use it because the hard part isn't using ChatGPT or even coming up with the right prompts. With a lot of trial and error, you can come up with the right prompt. The, the hard part is knowing when it's lying or not. And in order to know if it's lying, you have to know the subject matter. So, you know, I don't have a problem with schools using it. I don't have a problem with my kids using it because it's like that story that came out last week with the lawyer that used it for a brief that he turned into the courts and it cited cases that didn't exist. If you don't have the domain knowledge to know what exists or doesn't, you're going to look like a moron and you're going to flunk the class. And so that's why I'm okay with it because it creates, it requires domain knowledge. And that's also important in terms of trying to understand whether or not it'll create jobs or, you know, what the net impact with jobs are. I think it's, it's a net positive, particularly for people that are smart about something unique. You know, it's going to, you know, they have, um, they have the same RLHF reinforcement learning with humans, right? Where that they try to use people to um, correct things that are um, incorrect. Well, you need people who have domain knowledge. So you might, they're going to need a Shakespeare expert. They're going to need, you know, and all these little things will be used to, for them to compete. Because I think where people get confused is that um, generative AI is not homogenous, right? It's not like everybody's got the same product. They're going to be competing. You know, Google wants you to use BARD. Microsoft and OpenAI want you to use ChatGPT. Facebook will have theirs. Amazon will probably have theirs. There'll be others. Salesforce will want you to use theirs for sales. So how do, how are they going to differentiate? It's going to be really hard for them to differentiate based off of technology because, you know, my 13-year-old son isn't going to know the difference from one to the next based off the technology. And, you know, your portfolio companies aren't either for the most part. And so it's going to take specific information that will be licensed. 
to make it make it a difference. It's not like a, a search engine that just took everything that was open on a website and spiderable and just gave you a better way through page rank, you know, that Google worked better. I mean, it's got to be where what doctors are, you know, we have Harvard Medical School and the Cleveland and Mayo Clinics and our um, large learning model and our competitor only has Joe Blow Regional Hospital surgeons contributing. Or, you know, we went and licensed it all from Chegg and got all of their educational content to be input in our model and they have nothing, right? You're going to see those types of associations because that's how these models are going to differentiate themselves in the future. Let's maybe um, talk about some of the other areas of technology. Is there anything, anything besides AI that you find very exciting today? But also, is there anything that you actually find scary where you think that maybe some of the negative scenarios would outweigh benefits? Um, it's all scary at a certain level, right? But precision medicine, I think the decoding of our bodies is going to be along with AI. You know, if you look out 25, 50 or long years or longer, I think that's the most exciting and the scariest. If you think about your body, it's, you know, quadrillions of variables, if, you know, your genomes, your chromosomes, your everything, you know, your biomes, you know, you name it, right? They're, you know, atomically we we can't we haven't begun to define all the various variables that make up the human body and the human mind at some point we will we'll decode ourselves and if we're able to decode ourselves then you can simulate you know you can um you can simulate yourself and then if you can create a simulation of a person you know then with future ai you can take control of you know a a simulated olga or a replica or clone Olga and have it driven by the AI that basically, you know, is replicated the way you think and who you are and what you do. And, you know, you and I can just lay in a lounge chair or, you know, if you take a, a neural link, you know, it, if Elon gets his stuff working, you can have an AI that's now either extracting from us or inputting into us. There's just the possibilities get scary. A hundred years from now, all this is going to be is is going to be real for sure and so you know our bodies being decoded creates all the scariest outcomes that i can possibly think of I think that I mean, well, I was just I was just reflecting that if you ask some people, they'll say one Olga is just the right number of Olgas to okay. in the world. <laughs> they would not find the idea of cloning me um, to be a good one. But um, you know, but but certainly every every technology presents a lot of opportunities and and there could be negative scenarios, but chances are it's actually people who would create those scenarios, right? Of course. Um, yeah, so of course. So probably all of us still remain techno-optimists um, overall. So let's switch a little bit to some of the other areas. Uh, one of the things that I've been thinking about this year is a more structured approach to bring randomness in life. And so the goal here is chasing for outlier outcomes. My goals are learning something new, meeting interesting people. Interviews like that is an example of that. So what role has randomness played in your life? How do you bring it in life? What other ideas do you have for me and for some of the other people who want to have more randomness in their lives? That's a great question. I think that that's an awesome question. One of my favorite sayings is life is half random. And so there's certain, certain things that you can control. You can control your effort. You can control your curiosity. You can control your agility. Uh, you can control a lot of things. but 
you know, the time, you know, the technology during your lifetime, there's just certain things you cannot control, but, and you need to have the understanding that life continually changes. My dad used to say, you don't live in the world you were born into. You know, if you think about the technological status of things, the day you were born versus now, I don't care how old you are, it's changed, you know, and if you go back a hundred years, it's insane. And so you have to be cognizant of all the changes that are happening around you, because that's where the randomness occurs. Because when something didn't exist, and then the next day it does exist, that creates a whole infactorial of scenarios that people didn't have access to the day before. And so when all those things, that's the randomness of life. Olga comes up with a great idea that changes everything or changes, you know, certain things. And that creates a whole new set. It's called the butterfly effect, right? One little thing changes everything. And that's the randomness that you have to be aware of. Now, by definition, it's random. You're not going to be able to control it, but you can be there. I mean, People talked about um, how Wayne Gretzky, the hockey player, came along at the right time because of the rules of hockey changed a little bit and they matched up with his skill set. You know, a seven foot center, Shaquille O'Neal, wouldn't have as much impact today in the NBA because players are shooting, centers are shooting more threes and he wasn't a shooter. Now, Shaquille would say he would dominate anyways, but the game is different. And no one, you know, the day Shaquille was born or, you know, Greg Monroe, a random center, you know, um, you know, when, when he was seven foot tall as a 16 year old, the game was what it was. He could never have anticipated it was randomness to him that the NBA rules would change or the game would evolve. And so you've got to pay attention to what's happening around you, because when there's randomness and it presents itself, it's no longer random, right? It's now available and observable. And once it's observable, whoever moves first or whoever moves best has the greatest opportunity, if that all makes sense. Yep, it does. And you've accomplished a lot in in various types of entrepreneurial pursuits. Is there a part of your career and life and accomplishment that is perhaps lesser known that you're very proud of? Oh, my goodness. My kids, for the most part. It was known. I don't think it's as known now, but um, I've had a lot of firsts in the industry, you know, which I thought was really cool. Um, we were the first streaming company, you know, um, and not a lot of people know that. I started the first all high definition TV network called HDNet um, in 2000 um, when nobody thought HD would ever be a thing. Um, we did the first day and date movie release with our entertainment companies where we had them on TV, on cable, um, on the internet, et cetera. Cost plus drugs people know are starting to know now. Maybe my jump shot. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I think those first, I always, it was all, it's always been really fun for me to, to try to walk into places and, and say, okay, this is the way it's been done. Let me try to do it a little differently to give myself an edge and then just bust my ass teaching myself, you know, the way to figure it out and the way to implement it. And I think my greatest skill has been my ability to learn, you know, I'm a quick study. If you watch Shark Tank, you know, I can, I can. I just can figure things out faster than a lot of people. And, and, and that's helped me quite a bit to go to take that randomness and applied knowledge and learn about it and then apply it to business. 
Perfect. One of the things I'm, uh, or you know, one of the types of people I'm fascinated by is journalists, and it's people who start different things, who sort of, you know, create something new and interesting in lots of different areas of life, and that's that's a great example of that. Um, and uh, yeah, thank you for sharing some of the reflections on how to be a good journalist and how to go from one area to another. Um, but since you mentioned the entertainment portfolio, one of your companies is Magnolia, which is obviously the darling of the independent film industry. Um, I'm a huge fan of the documentary on Enron, you know, who knew corporate fraud lends itself so well to that. Um, I also saw a musical. I don't know if musical was also part of it or if it was independently mm -hmm. done by someone, but anyways, lots of great films there. Wait, do you know the story of Enron? Uh, the story the, behind Enron, the smartest guys in the room? Um, the movie. Well, the, the, oh, the story behind the movie. Tell us the story about behind the movie. Okay, so Enron, the smartest guys in the room would, was released in 2004. It would go on to um, be one of the top 10 documentaries, grossing documentaries of all time at that time. Um, it's since been surpassed. The way it got made was I got a cold email from a guy named Alex Gibney, who I had no idea who he was. He was brand new to the industry. And he said, I got, I've got all this corporate footage from Enron. And he kind of described it. And I'm like, do you have exclusive license to it? And you're able to use it? Yes. And how are you know, what do you want to do with it? We want to make a documentary about Enron. And there's a book called Enron, the smartest guys in the room. Um, and we're going to work with the author there. I'm like, great. How much is it going to cost? He goes $770,000. I'm like, great, let's do it. So in the span of about 12 minutes, I greenlit Enron, the smartest guys in the room. And it would go on to be nominated for an Academy Award and be a top grossing documentary at the time. Then our next movie, and this is with Todd Wagner, my partner in 2929 in Magnolia, he comes to me and he says, um, I've been working with this company, Participant Films, and they've got a movie with George Clooney about the McCarthy trials called Good Night and Good Luck. And I'm like, well, that's cool. How much is it going to cost? $8 million. Half is our All right, let's do it. So our second movie was Good Night and Good Luck. And it was nominated for six Academy Awards. So our first two movies are nominated for seven Academy Awards. We didn't win, unfortunately. But I'm thinking, this business is easy. Nah. <laughs> we don't do a whole lot of production anymore. We had some decent movies, but not enough great movies. Magnolia, on the other hand, is a distribution company. And um, Eamon Bowles and the staff there have got a great eye. And Todd have got a great eye for, for picking movies to distribute. And it's done really well. Um, so one of the interesting things about this story and, and many others is that you're able to make decisions very quickly. Uh, I admire that quality greatly. What do you think your secret is? Is it because, you know, you are in a position to deal with consequences if something doesn't work out, you have brought not pro enough portfolio? Is it because you think you have better judgment? Sort of, you know, what's, what's your take on the ability to make decisions quickly and not regret it? So a couple things. One, I've got enough money that if I lose, I'll be okay, right? If you know, if you go back 30 years, I didn't make decisions nearly as quickly, close but not nearly as quickly. And two, I value time as my most valuable asset. I, I don't like to mess around. Um, you know, I feel like if I can do the homework and prepare myself, I can I can get to a, a yes or no very quickly. Now it's failed a bunch of times too. You know, I've got I've had companies where there's fraud or this or that that have cost me 30, 40 million dollars overall because you know I probably should have done more due diligence. But on the flip side, you know, I've got like one portfolio company, Relativity Space that when it did its last valuation, it was four billion dollars. I was their very first investor and got a big chunk of the company. And I've still never met the guys. 
And that was eight, nine years ago. And they keep on saying, well, come out, you know, we just launched this rocket and we, you know, we're using our 3D printers to build this next rocket. I'm like, nah, it's such a great story. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and so I've got, I've got a bunch of those where they, you know, cost plus drugs came from a cold email. And so I've gotten to the point now where one, I'm not afraid to fail. Two, I can, you know, as long as it's an industry, I know I'm not going to do this if it's an industry I don't know, but if it's something I know, then I know the questions to ask. And I can tell based off the responses, whether or not they know what they're talking about. And are there any insights about maybe the types of people that you deal with? Are there certain qualities that if you see it in a person, let's say it would immediately be a deal breaker for you or the opposite? Yeah. If they're not curious, if they're not always learning, if they're not into selling, there's a lot of um, entrepreneurs that come and they're technology um, founders and they don't really have a feel for selling their product at all. And I just can't deal with that at all. If you don't, you know, even if you're not a salesperson and most aren't, if you don't believe in your product so much that you know that every single person you talk to, you want to brag about it to, you know, and, and you realize that selling isn't about convincing, it's about helping. If you can't find, see yourself being the number one salesperson for your company, you know, th- that's where my greatest failures have been, you know, because they can't sell. So what happens is they're, they're always looking for a magic bullet. They're looking, oh, we just brought in the greatest marketing director. We just brought in the greatest chief revenue officer. Our CRO is the best. Then it doesn't work. And then the next person, oh, our new CRO is so much better than the last CRO. And so you go through this cycle of looking for a magic bullet person who all of a sudden is going to change the game for them. And it happens sometimes, but it's it's always leads to more negative outcomes than positive. Um, so the other side of your entertainment-related career is your acting career. Um, <laughs> in villains, love villains, great movie, um, great TV series. So how did that come about? How did you decide? And and just generally, what do you like about acting? What do you not like about acting? Um, yeah, tell us tell us more about your acting pursuits. Um, um, if anybody's a Good Burger fan, I just did my cameo in Good Burger too, which is great. Um, the reason I do it is in business. It's all about control and understanding and learning, right? And I feel confident and you've got to, you know, like we've like we've been talking, get your arms around it and learn as much as you can. And acting is the exact opposite. You've got to let just let go and be in the moment and you get to pretend and be anything that you want. And so that's why I like it because it's it's harder for me because it's so different. It's the antithesis of who I am, just letting go and having no control. And that gives me some balance. And you get to meet some crazy people, some fun people, and put yourself in amazing positions. Like I did House Party 2 with LeBron James, and I got to be, you know, in this Illuminati scene where I'm the Illuminati. And, you know, it's just insane stuff that, you know, or being an entourage or being the president in um, Sharknado 3. All these insane, insane, insane things where you've got to just block out everything and just be in the moment with whoever you're talking to on camera. And that's so different than my life that I find that fun. Um, It does sound fun. Somebody once said that the best thing about being famous is you get to hang out with a lot of other famous people. So um, you obviously have met a lot of really interesting people. Who are some of the ones that you find inspiring in ways that you find most people don't know? Like sort of the question of like, you know, not necessarily underrated, but something really special about someone famous that most of us would find surprising. I've gone to 
Dairy Queen and had ice cream with Warren Buffett multiple times. I mean, and we didn't talk stocks. We didn't talk investments. We talked about his stamp collection. We talked baseball. We talked sports. Now, he's not underrated, obviously. Charles Barkley is probably the the funniest, most fun human I've ever been around. Kevin Hart, the same thing. Um, Guys that, you know, or people that, Gwyneth Paltrow, that were far different than I expected. But, you know, the, the underlying thing is everybody's just normal. You know, the few divas that I've met, male or female, um, you just don't spend any time with them and you just move on. And But, you know, all that said, you know, people think, oh, the billionaires club, y'all hang out, right, and have a secret handshake and all that. And my best friends are my high school, my college buddies, you know, and, and my roommates from when I first moved to Dallas. Those are the guys that I care about the most, that I talk to the most, um, and my brothers. And so, yeah, it's d- despite the bank account, um, I think they would tell you I'm still the same idiot they've always known. <laughs> um, well, Reed Hoffman has this great speech about friendship and the importance of good friendships in life. Um, what do you think your secret is for being able to continue these relationships through your entire life? No, there's no secret. It's just, you know, they're my friends. You know, I, I mean, why would anything change because my bank account changed? That just never made sense to me um, that I should be different or act differently or, you know, do this or this is the way rich people are supposed to act. That that always made no sense to me whatsoever. I liked my life when I was poor, when I was sleeping on the floor, when I had nothing. I was broke. I didn't like that part. I didn't like all the bill collectors and all that stuff. But those were my friends back then. You know, they know me. I know them. And, you know, that's who I care about. There's no reason to change. So speaking of being rich, what's your favorite item in the three comma store? And how did that partnership come about? On the the three comma store. So um, the favorite is or I'm wearing one actually. Yeah, this is from the <laughs> common store. So I'm down at the mass practice facility. So sometimes when I see the players and they're talking about their contracts and stuff, I'll wear something like this in. And the way it came about was um when I first bought the Mavs, people would always say three comma clubs, three comma clubs, and it was all new to me. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna trademark that and brand it. Right. And so then this guy came up to me and said, Well, I heard you talking about it. Can we start selling some some uh, merchandise around it? And I'm like, sure. Um, and then when um, HBO came out with Silicon Valley and they started talking about it, right, we actually, they had to license the trademark from us for this Trace Comma tequila. And so I actually got paid for it. So it turned out okay. <laughs> well, that's that's a great story. Um, and, uh, you know, you obviously have been um, very involved in, in lots of different consumer brands in, in lots of things that a lot of people know about. Are there any consumer behavior patterns that you are seeing today that you think are interesting? Like, is there something changing fundamentally about what people like are interested about by? You know what? I think the fundamental principle that I always try to stick to is people always take the path to least resistance. Nobody wants to work to buy something. Nobody wants to work to consume something. They really want, you know, people value their time over everything. Because we, we, you know, unless you're really young, you never have enough. And so I think that's number one. I think what's changed is that people now look at a lot of consumer brands as confirmation that they're part of a, a given community. You know, it might be wearing something pride to show your support or that you're part of the the community. Um, It might be wearing, you know, a Mavs logo T-shirt or hat to show you're part of that community. And I think. 
um, what happens in that community has become far more important than it used to be. I think because of social media, um, everybody's a brand at certain at a certain level, and we represent ourselves on our social media and everything that we wear, everything that we show on our body, even if it's a tattoo, excuse me, tattoo or ring or whatever it is, um, shows what tribes, if you will, we're a member of, what communities we're a member of. And in some cases, that's bad, but I think that's really what's changed, that when you're selling something, you always have to ask what communities that you're selling to and how do they identify themselves and are you a positive or negative image for that brand, uh, for that community? Now, sometimes that goes negative, like we've seen with Bud Light and and Target, but I think those um, adversarial communities, like we've seen, I think they tend to be really, really tiny and transient. I think when you see things like boycotts and the communities there, I think that's more a reflection of someone, the randomness of what happened. Somebody, you know, moved to the front of the line and got some visibility and and some influence and that runs out very quickly. So, you know, you see people that have gone from Bud Light to Target and now because Chick-fil-A has got a DEI person, they're trying to use their influence to influence. And you know, you can only, when a community is negative like that, it runs out of juice very, very quickly. When a community is positive and open and inclusive and um, supportive, that, that's a community that grows. That's a community that wants to get bigger. That's a community that reflects, you know, who you are. And when that community also has a mission, like you see a lot of companies now with the social construct, you know, we're donating one shirt, we're building a school, we're doing whatever. That's, you know, that's a community people will take that brand association and wear or show with pride. And so I think 40 years ago, it was status. You know, I'm going to drive my Cadillac or my Mercedes or whatever, you know, for some, it's still a Rolex or whatever, but for most it's okay. This is who I am. This is the community that I'm part of. And I, you know, I want you to see it because I want you to know who I am and to know what's important to me. And I think we reflect that in every Instagram post, every most Snapchat posts, you know, and the things, you know. Not so much Twitter, that's a different beast, but the things where we show ourselves as opposed to just talk about things, I think we really try to demonstrate our community and that's what brands really need to be cognizant of. Since you mentioned Twitter, um, tell us more a little bit, tell us more about your social media diet. Where do you spend time and and just broadly, where do you get information from? Are there certain things that you read on a daily basis? Um, how do you like to learn? Um, I like to use Twitter for real-time information. I like to use Twitter to challenge my hypotheses, if you will, Um, check my whole card to make sure what I saw is what I believe. Um, But it's obviously changing. It's changed a lot since Elon has taken over. I think there's, you know, there's still some verticals where you can engage well, but there's a lot more adversarials um, in that world than there used to be. I've started to spend, I spent some time on post, um, spending a lot more time on Sky. Um, uh, Blue Sky, rather. Um, I think it's got potential, but it's still a social network as opposed to a knowledge network, if you will. You know, Twitter started off as a social network back at South by Southwest. Where you going tonight? What you doing? DM me. Let's talk. Hey, you know, let's hang out. Um, but it's not a social network any longer. It's social media, and that there's a big difference. And so, you know, for for information and first sourcing. Um, 
particularly for sports. I'll go to Twitter. I also use, I think the hidden gem that I use is Google Alerts because I, you know, I don't think people realize just how powerful Google Alerts are beyond just the, um, you know, just putting your name in there and, and, you know, just having that. All my companies, I have an alert for topics that I think, you know, generative AI, whatever, where I want, you know, even if it's just once a week, just be able to get a rundown of things that are out there because it's hard to proactively go find those things. And so I think Google Alerts are, are a hidden gem um, that are part of my media, if you will. So we have just a couple of minutes left. So let's go back to sort of normal things, right? So okay. Mark, you know, not the person that everybody knows who he is, but the person that your kids and your family know. Like what part of, you know, that life what are some of the things you're really good at, right? And it can be something else oh because I make the best. Well, let, let me just tell you, I have three, whatever. Yes, I tell have three teenagers, three teenagers, a little boy, Jake, and two girls, 16 and 19. There's nothing I do that's good. Nothing. <laughs> nothing. Like I'm all, I'm all about gross. <laughs> oh my God, it's brutal. It is brutal. Uh, <laughs> it literally, um, but, you know, I've got my silly rules that they, you know, they just roll their eyes at me. You know, I always, you know, how you do anything is how you do everything. I've got my food rules. My dad rule is if you like one thing and you like another thing and you put them together, you'll like it even more. And they get grossed out by that. Um, Cause I, when I make a salad, I like to put every, like I'm, I'm a vegetarian and so I need to get iron. And so I like put total cereal into my salad as kind of a crouton thing to make it crunchy. And they're just disgusted by that. I think it's just smart. They're disgusting. <laughs> uh, you know, um, just stuff like that. Um, you know, my daughter is really good at rowing. She's a sophomore, just finished a sophomore year in high school and she's really good. And so I'll go to the meets, the regattas and um, she'll see me and just give me the look, stay out of my way. Don't let anybody know you're here. You know? And so, just typical parent parents, you know, just parental things. And, you know, and, and that's, that's the good thing. It's just typical. That's why I couldn't watch secession. It just terrified me. My older daughter st- said, she's just started watching secession. I'm like, whatever you do, take notes on what not to do. Do not, <laughs> that is not how we're going to end up. Um, well, it's, it's definitely a great TV show, amazing storytelling and drama, but um, also just from, you know, whatever I know about you already, I can tell you that your house is probably run in a very different way. So you're at low risk of ending up there. Let's but, hope so. You um, never know. Uh, well, Mark, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you about all of these topics. Thank you so much for sharing your perspective. Um, really enjoyed it. Thanks, Olga. I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for listening to the Village Global podcast. You can check us out online at villageglobal.vc. We'd love to hear from you, your feedback, your ideas, your inspirations. You can email us at hello at villageglobal.vc.